so, how's the sound? Let's start there. Can you hear me in the back? It's good? Okay. So we've come to the end of this first day. For some of you, it was a day of considerable struggle, I suspect. We haven't talked to too many of you yet, but I know that that's true of the first day. And maybe some suffering. A few of you might have had a honeymoon, but you'd better watch out for tomorrow because you never know, you know. And usually at the beginning of a retreat, it's tricky. So it's a beginning. So I thought I'd read you one of my favorite beginning of retreat poems from John O'Donohoe. And it's called For a New Beginning. He says, In out-of-the-way places of the heart, where your thoughts never think to wander, this beginning has been quietly forming, waiting until you were ready to emerge. For a long time it has watched your desire, feeling the emptiness growing inside you, noticing how you willed yourself on, still unable to leave what you had outgrown. It watched you play with the seduction of safety and the gray promises that sameness whispered, heard the waves of turmoil rise and relent, wondered, would you always live like this? Then the delight when your courage kindled and out you stepped onto new ground, your eyes young again with energy and dream, a path of plenitude opening before you. Though your destination is not yet clear, you can trust the promise of this opening. Unfurl yourself into the grace of beginning that is at one with your life's desire. Awaken your spirit to adventure, hold nothing back, learn to find ease in risk. Soon you will be home in a new rhythm, for your soul senses the world that awaits you. So in this practice that we're doing, there's a very good one-word instruction. So here's the one-word instruction. You can stop listening maybe at this point. And that one word is here. Here. Ida in Pali, if you like having the Pali words. So we are here. We've been practicing being here all day, every time you've wandered off and gone away, you've come back here at this beginning. So, you know, those of us up in front think you all look really great. You look quiet and still and peaceful and calm and centered and focused and all of those things. I imagine what's going on inside might be a little different. So, you know, we wonder, how's your inspiration? You know, how are you doing in there, really? And what keeps you going? What keeps you going through all of this, through all the ups and downs? Maybe it's sheer stubbornness. You said you'd come and do this retreat. You're going to do the retreat. Or maybe 
It's the intention that we talked about last night when you all stated your intention for this period of time. Whatever it is and wherever you are, what we know is that beginnings are important. They're really important. And they create the foundation on which everything else is built. So as we mentioned last night, there's great wisdom in the notion of beginner's mind. Suzuki Roshi, the great Zen teacher, said, in the mind of the beginner there are many opportunities, and in the mind of the expert there are few. So, you know, it's a really good thing to have that beginner's mind with all those opportunities. And all of us also know, at least I do, maybe you don't, how much difficulty can come when we pretend to be more experienced than we are. We don't want to be a beginner, we want to be an expert, right? And so you pretend to be an expert when you're not. And not usually, at least not in my case, very successful. So we begin with the body, the sitting, breathing body, the focus of the whole retreat this week. And we've been attending specifically to the breath, allowing it to arise in the space of the mind, relaxing into the awareness of the in-breath and the out-breath, the long breath and the short breath. Each of us, each one of you, had a first breath. Isn't that interesting? You look around the room. And as we, we took that breath, as we entered this human realm of time and space, and if you've ever been at a birth, either giving birth yourself or been present, it's an extraordinary moment. I was present at the birth of both of my grandsons, as well as, of course, the births of my daughters. Um, but particularly in the, with the boys, you know, since I wasn't in the process of doing it, seeing that first breath, that amazing first breath, as this little being kind of wakes up and comes in. And so that's the place we come back to. It's foundational. We come back to it over and over and over again to this breath, grounding the breath in the body. And by the end of this week, you're going to be really, really familiar with the body and all of its parts, way more parts than 32, although for some reason the early Buddhists seemed to think there were only 32, but we know there's more than that. And um, we'll be talking about all the parts of the body and the functions of those parts and the amazing work that we do. And we hope that as we do that, you'll in your sitting practice, you'll be really grounding yourself in the body as well. So we begin with the breath, we return to the breath, you come back to the breath anytime when you get lost or confused or scared or you forget all the instructions you ever heard about practice, then you come back to the breath because it's the place that actually calms and focuses the mind and gives us a place to rest. So sometimes when things are pretty quiet, you're just hanging out with the breath because nothing much else is going on. It's a pretty sweet spot, actually, when that happens. And then sometimes it's a refuge. We rest also in the walking body, in that practice of walking, 
back and forth, giving our attention to the movement of the body. And we rest also in the movement of the body of other practices like Qigong and yoga and practices like that. So here's a wonderful secret. When you are aware of being in the body, you are here. Isn't that interesting? Body awareness means you are present. You can't be aware of your body and not be here. So it's a shortcut back to the present moment if you need one, and you might. And so that's part of why it is the foundation. But there are other aspects of beginning as well that might be important to reflect on. So we talked last night about that moment when you signed up for the retreat. You know, what brought you to the retreat? Why did you sign up? You may be wondering that tonight. Why did I sign up? What was I thinking? But here you are. And maybe even farther back, whatever it was that brought you to practice, what brought you to whatever your earliest spiritual practice was, all of the catastrophes and the joys and the sorrows, the struggles of life, the other teachers, the other retreats, the books, the tapes, whatever it was, And so all of these things are also part of the foundation and the beginning of our practice. So tonight I want to do something a little special. It's not entirely easy for me um, because what I want to do is weave through this talk the story of a very dear friend and great practitioner, my friend Steve Young, who died very suddenly on August 1st. And Steve came to us at Vipassana Santa Cruz, so our community in Santa Cruz, where I was for many years. I don't know, I think it was about eight years ago. Maybe, maybe more, maybe a little less. And he was on fire with the Dharma. He had begun to read and study, and he'd found our center, and he wanted to do everything he possibly could. He wanted to go to all the classes. He wanted to be in the classes for the advanced students. And he pleaded with me, please can I come to the advanced students class? You know, when somebody begs hard enough, I can't say no. And he came and he was a great inspiration to all of us because he was so passionate about his practice. He really wanted to give it everything. And so he came to his practice. We've all come to practice. He'd had a rough life and things hadn't gone very well for him, and he was really ready to change, really, really ready. So it's an interesting thing to consider. What is the state of mind that wants to wake up? What is it that brings us to that place of wanting to wake up? What brought you to that place? What could encourage that place? So there's a teaching about four particular thoughts for mind states that bring us to practice and that when we reflect on them, they support us and nourish us as we continue our practice. And so along with the sitting, breathing, body awareness, they can be the foundation, they can be the mind-heart foundation of this work. So these four thoughts are, the first is about the preciousness and rarity of a human life. 
with the leisure and opportunity for practice. The second thought is the absolute inevitability of death. The third is to consider the awesome power of our actions, even the smallest ones. And the fourth is looking at the pervasive presence of suffering. So these thoughts aren't new to you. You might not ever have heard this particular list before. But so much practice is inspired by some permutation or variation of any one of these thoughts. They're as familiar as our breath, and they are really the earmarks of human existence, and they're also the challenges of having a human life. So the preciousness of human life with leisure and opportunity for practice. So we know that when that things are very precious, we hold them to be precious often when they're rare, when they're not easily found. And whatever else you may say about human beings, we are actually rare and vastly outnumbered. So the classic example of the rarity of a human life in the texts, in the early Buddhist texts, is that there is in all of the oceans of the world, and I don't know how many oceans they were aware of at that point, probably not all of them, but in the oceans, in the ocean, there is a blind sea turtle. And your chance of getting a human incarnation is about as good as that blind sea turtle swimming around is going to find the one oxbow, so think, I think of a life preserver usually, floating around somewhere on that ocean. So obviously the chances of your having a human birth are not great under those circumstances, that particular image. I think a more modern example and one that resonates more with most of us is to consider the vastness of the cosmos. So we know so much. When I think of how much more we know now than I did when I was a child, um, it's astounding. So now we know There are billions of galaxies just like ours. And in those billions of galaxies, there are trillions and trillions of stars, many of which have planets. It's unthinkable how big the cosmos is. Uncountable, unthinkable. Astronomers these days are spending a lot of time searching for what they're calling habitable planets. So these are planets that are just in the right position in their own solar system, not too close to their sun, not too far away, and made out of the right stuff, because a planet that's all gas, you know, that's not so helpful. So they have to be just right, and to be possibly the kind of planet that would sustain some form of life, some form of life. We're not even talking people here, we're just talking some form of life. So slowly they're beginning to suss out that there are some places that that might be possible. But you know, so far I think there, it's less than a dozen. It's, I think it's about five or six. It changes almost every week, so you know, they're finding more. But it's not very many. So there aren't very many. Who knows how many life forms, let alone conscious life forms, exist in all that immensity. So this 
thing, this event, this human existence, this body and mind, it's pretty unusual. You know, even if there's more out there, it's still unusual. It's still unusual. And not only that, here on this planet, we are outnumbered. In fact, you are outnumbered on your body. There are trillions of life forms who inhabit your body. They're walking around there, having a good old time, being born, making love, dying, whatever it is that that all those little bacteria and things do. Bob's going to talk more about this later this week. You'll be well acquainted with your trillions of life forms. Right there, isn't that interesting? Trillions of them just hanging out. Inside, inside and out, because inside and outside doesn't really matter to them, you know. They, they move in and out. So, but not only that, on this planet, think of all the bugs, the insects. Millions and millions and millions and billions of insects. And then if you add in the fish and the elephants and the lions and tigers and the amoebas and the birds and everything else, there's way more of everybody else than us. Way more. We're only seven billion. So even, you know, if you think of the trillions on me and the trillions on all of you, um, that's a lot of trillions just in this room of little tiny life forms. And not only that, we're recent. We are a very recent invention. Four and a half billion years of the Earth's existence, and we are at the very, very last second as far as that time frame is concerned. And who knows how long we will last. It might not be so very long. We don't know, you know. It's easy to think we're going to be here for forever, but we have no real sense that that's going to be true. It's not common, it's very rare, and it's very precious. And it's even more precious when we have the leisure and the opportunity to practice. Because just as a planet needs a habitable zone, there's a few things that we need. We need the right balance of ease and difficulty in our lives. It's too difficult or or too easy, that's a problem. We need the chance to come to the retreats. You have to have that opportunity, that space in your life to be able to come and practice. So my friend Steve was yearning for an opportunity to practice. And he'd seen enough and he knew that he really needed to give his life over to practice and he really wanted to do it. So after about a year with us in Santa Cruz, he began to look around to see where could he spend his life. And it just so happened that there was a caretaker position open here at Spirit Rock. And he came and it was a good fit. So many of you who've sat retreats before have undoubtedly met him because he was often the person greeting the new retreaters at the gate. And um, with his great smile and his wonderful warmth and his extraordinarily generous heart. And, you know, I look over here and I expect to see him sitting there because he would sit. You know, he sat like nobody else could sit, you know, straight and still and present. It was such an inspiration. Late in the night, early in the morning, he was always up here in the hall, always. Well, not always. He did his work, but, you know, he was here a lot. 
And so here we are, you know, I sense, I have this feeling that he's here with us and we are here and we are all, we are lucky, Steve was lucky, to have this chance to sit in this amazing hall where so many people have sat before and so many people will sit and to do this practice. We know the world is filled with people who suffer so much, who have no homes and no food and no resources and for whom there is no time for practice. There's only time for survival. They don't have the leisure. They don't have the means. They don't have the opportunity to practice. And there are those who have so much that they get caught in greed and the constant quest for more and the idleness and numbness that comes with overindulgence. And they don't open to practice. They don't see the opportunity and they don't use the leisure that they have. So it's the balance. It's just, you know, it's that middle way kind of thing where it's just right, not too hot, not too cold, just right, just like the three bears, you know. There's great wisdom in that story. So the second of these thoughts is the thought of impermanence and the awareness of impermanence and the inevitability of death. So this is a hugely important thought to reflect on. This is the thought that actually inspired and turned the Buddha in his own awakening. The story goes that most of you, I think, know that you know, he'd been raised in this very protected environment. He finally got out the way young men often do. And when he was out, he saw someone who was sick. And he'd never seen someone who was sick. Was that going to happen to him? He asked his, the fellow who was out with him. Yes. He saw someone who was old. He'd never seen an old person before, you know. And he'd never seen a dead person, and he saw a dead person. And he was astounded. And then he saw somebody, a monk of some sort, walking through that same area with the old people, the sick people, the dead person, who seemed to be calm and centered. And the Buddha got very interested. How do you have that ability to be calm and centered and present in the face of all this difficulty? And so that's what turned him. He went home and changed, left his home, changed his life, and went off and began to practice. Nothing stays the same, ever. Where is breakfast? Where is that really yummy lunch with the quinoa, with the lemon and the herbs, right? It's gone. Where is the last sitting? Where's the breath, the last breath you just had? It's all changing and shifting so quickly, you know? We don't notice this. We don't notice how impermanent things are. We don't even notice, really, that we're going to die. Everybody else is going to die, but not me. I was working on this talk at one point, listening to a song, and there was a line in the song, It said, if I should ever die. And I thought, what? Really? (laughs) If I should ever die? Spare me. You know, it's not if, it's when. 
It's when. There's a practice that I learned a while back from my monk friends. And in that practice, when you say goodbye to someone, if you want to do the practice, you look at that person and you say, goodbye forever. Goodbye forever. And it's a practice that, you know, sometimes it brings a smile when you think about it, and when you try it, it makes your stomach drop. Because it's really huge to say to somebody, goodbye forever. Because we don't know. And my, on May 12th, my friend Steve drove me to the airport after I had been teaching here at Spirit Rock. And after that, I had a couple of phone conversations with him. But you know, I never said to Steve, goodbye forever. I didn't. I did my best in the last weeks of his life, but I was in the islands and he was here. And it was goodbye forever. That's the thing, isn't it? That sometimes when we say goodbye to somebody, it is goodbye forever because we don't know what is going to happen. And so he had a stroke early in July and they discovered that he had cancer throughout his body, in his heart and in his lungs. And he died just three weeks later, really fast. We all have rude awakenings like this. We have the friends and family and lovers who die. We have the diagnosis we don't want for our own bodies. We have the beloved pet who leaves after walking with us after all these years. These are the heavenly messengers. That's what they're called in that traditional story of the Buddha. Sickness, old age, and death, and that monk. Those are the heavenly messengers. So when they come, they are the heavenly messengers for each one of us. For most of us, if I look around the room, a lot of our life is already gone. If you're 40, it might be about 50% over. I'm about to be 72. So if I make it to 90, I figured this out, mine is about 80% gone. That's a lot. 80%. You know, who said that? But you know, maybe it's 99.9% gone. You know, maybe I won't make it back to my bed tonight. It's possible. Or maybe you won't, you know, because those things happen. People do just die sometimes. So this is really serious, folks. It's really serious. We don't know. We never know when. You know, we drove down from Northern California the other day and the flags were at half staff. And we went, what? What? What happened? And then we remembered that it was 9-11. You know? Twelve years ago, a vast number of people, 3,000 people, went off to work that morning thinking it was a day like any other day. They ate their Cheerios or their toast or their eggs, drank their coffee, kissed their wives or their husbands and their children and went to work. And they're gone by the end of the day. So this thought invites us not to waste time 
to practice as though, there's a Zen saying, this is practice as though your hair is on fire. You know, with that kind of intensity and presence, not knowing. Here's another poem from Jane Kenyon, who died quite young of leukemia after writing a lot of wonderful poetry. She says, I got out of bed on two strong legs. It might have been otherwise. I ate cereal, sweet milk, ripe, flawless peach. It might have been otherwise. I took the dog uphill to the birch wood. All morning I did the work I love. At noon I lay down with my mate. It might have been otherwise. We ate dinner together at a table with silver candlesticks. It might have been otherwise. I slept in a bed in a room with paintings on the walls and planned another day just like this day. But one day I know it will be otherwise. So, you know, I don't know actually how much Steve thought about this. He didn't know he was sick. I do know that he practiced as though he might not have much time with that kind of intensity. And it's such a hard thing for us to take in, isn't it? I'm sure uh, even as you're sitting here, it's hard to to think about this. How How do we contemplate the inevitability of our own dying and the not knowing when with some degree of equanimity? And so Ajahn Chah, the great Thai teacher who was the founder, one of the founders of this particular lineage of practice, used to hold up his favorite teacup, kind of like this, and he would say, I consider this cup to be already broken. You know, I consider, people would say, why, you have a favorite teacup, how come, aren't you attached? And so he would say, I understand that it's already broken, you know? And So we can practice that, you know? Your favorite dish is already broken, or your neighborhood has already changed, or um, your favorite flowering plant that lives on your windowsill has died, and you can practice thinking that that is true before it happens, to kind of get ready for it. This retreat is already over. It's already, think of that, you can... This retreat is dying, you know. The building is already falling down. As we were driving the other day, I was holding on, which I sometimes do when my good husband drives a little faster than I like. And so here I am holding on to this thing, you know. And I look over at my arm and I think, oh my God, it's dying. (laughs) It's got all this wrinkly skin. I don't have wrinkly skin. You know, other people have wrinkly skin, not me. But no, this body is dying. And I can practice that. It's an interesting thing once in a while to say to yourself, I'm dying. Because we are, every one of us. You're on, once you're born, you're on your way. I'm sorry, you've started dying. That's just how it is. So we can practice, I'm dying. Because there will come that equally astounding moment when the breath stops, that last breath, which is astonishing, as astonishing and as extraordinary as the first breath. 
However, there's even more to consider because in this precious, very short life, what we also know is that our actions can be very powerful and they have enormous consequences. We forget this, don't we? We barge ahead sometimes, we're cranky and irritated and we want what we want and we're impatient and we leave in our wake family, friends, work colleagues who are hurt and bewildered and can't figure out what happened with her. You know, why is she this way? And we forget that our words and our actions have that kind of power. No one here has escaped this. We have all been harmed by another person. We've been harmed by speech, certainly, all of us, and we've been harmed by some kind of action or force. And equally true is that no one in this room is innocent of harming another. We've all done it, sometimes with our speech and sometimes by force. And countless hours of therapy and retreats and all of that later, you are probably quite aware that these actions reverberate for a long, long time in the heart, in the mind, in the body. We also know that there is a reverberation to skillful action. So again, pondering your being here at this retreat, what brought you? It's interesting to think of all the skillful actions on your part and possibly on the part of other people that brought you here to this retreat. Because you didn't just, you know, you didn't lead a really mean and nasty and evil life and then suddenly land at Spirit Rock. It just doesn't happen, you know? So you've done a lot of things that have brought you here to this particular retreat. And you know, it's interesting with actions because it doesn't take much to really begin to change the direction of a life. One of the teachings that I've used a lot and really love is that if you are setting out in a boat, let's just say from the Atlantic coast of this country, and you change your course by one degree on that Atlantic coast, it will make a vast difference where you land when you get over to the European African coast. One degree. Interesting, huh? Over that amount of time, it's increasing amounts of miles and change. I remember some years ago in in the group in Santa Cruz, I think it was around the time that the Iraq war started, someone saying to me, you know, I don't know how to make peace in the world. I would love to be able to change the world so it can be peaceful. He said, but what I do know how to do is to be peaceful myself, and so that's what I'm going to do. So he was just trusting on that, in that notion that even a small amount would begin to change things. That small amount of peace that he could do in his home, in his neighborhood, in his workplace would begin to gradually create a change. Or I think of all the people over the years that I've worked with both in my therapy practice and in teaching who have said to me, every now and then someone will say, remember when you said, da 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 whatever it was I said, 
and it was really helpful and it really changed my life. And I off, almost always I'm sitting there kind of scratching my head thinking, I said that? <laughs> I don't remember it. You know, it wasn't a big thing. It was sometimes an offhand comment in the course of an, of an interview or a therapy session. But it struck something and it's just that small thing, you know. So you never know when that small kind word or that supportive statement might make a huge difference in someone's lives. So Steve, you know, I know, and listening and hearing people talk in this community, how much his actions and his way of life and his total dedication to his practice, both in his work and on the cushion, really began to affect people. And the community was was just racked with grief over his illness and passing. So I'm sure some of you must remember him from being at the gate. And if you don't, there's a picture of him on the back altar and you're welcome to go visit him later tonight when we're done. One of my favorite stories is the head caretaker wrote about this. He said, you know, I used to get angry because every time Steve was at the gate for the opening of a retreat, it took much longer. (laughs) You know, the lines got long and it just took forever for people to get through the gate. And finally he felt that he had to say something, you know, he was the head caretaker. So he went to talk to Steve. He said, you know, it's always so slow when you're the one that's greeting people. And Steve said, look, a lot of these people, so this is some of you, they're coming here for the first time. They're really nervous. They don't know Spirit Rock from any place. They're confused about where's the meditation hall and where's the dorms and what do I do with my bags? And they're scared and I want them to be comfortable and I want them to know where everything is and I want them to you know, not be scared. So I'm going to take the time to make sure that they're comfortable and they know where they're going. What can you say to that? Not much, huh? So I think the lines just continued to be slow on the days when Steve was there. You know, it's not that he was perfect. I'm sure intimate family members and friends can probably tell you a few stories about how he was a perfectly ordinary human being. He was. And he had this great heart and this great commitment to practice. So the last of the things, the thoughts that are inspiring the mind is that of the enormity of suffering, the samsara of our existence. So, you know, it may be rare and it may be precious, but it does not come without suffering. That seems to be part of the deal. There's the suffering that comes simply because we have a body, this body that we're talking about all week. But it does get sick and it does get hurt and it does get old and it does ultimately die. So there's lots of pain involved in the human existence. And there's the suffering that comes because there's nothing ever that's permanently, that's permanent. It's it's all arising and passing and it's never completely satisfactory, is it? You get what you want, finally, you know, the ice cream, the great sex, whatever, and does it last? No, it changes. It's over, or you know, you get halfway through the ice cream cone and you go, oh, 
I thought I wanted that flavor, but it doesn't really taste so good anymore. Or whatever it is, it doesn't last, and the satisfaction doesn't hold. And then, of course, there's the enormous suffering that comes when we struggle against the way things are. The planet is filled with suffering. All you have to do is whatever you do to get your news these days, look on Google or the New York Times or the Washington Post or whoever you turn to for your news, and it can be overwhelming if you stay with it. The enormity of the suffering of the planet, the injustice, the prejudice, the killing, endless shattered families and broken environments and the whole issue of climate change and what's going to happen to this poor planet. It is everywhere and it is unavoidable. I know that my friend Steve knew a lot about suffering and I know that he had suffered all these different kinds of suffering in his own life. And the Buddha knew that people suffer and he also saw that it would be possible to find freedom in the midst of all this pain and difficulty, that it is possible to find a place of ease and freedom even in the midst of it. So you know, given all the suffering, what else is there to do except practice? You know, there are not too many other choices. It seems to be really the only solid way to deal with this kind of serious and unusual problem of having a human life, to go right into it, to see what is deeply so, and to find some ease in that way. You know, avoidance and denial only creates more suffering. There's so many stories of seeking the treasure, you know, the the jewel of awakening, whatever. And, you know, in most of the stories, the hero goes over hill and dale and deals with dragons and and storms and wars and all kinds of things, and then discovers that where was the treasure all along? Often sewn into the hem of their robe or buried in the yard, in the in the in their garden, right there where they started in the first place. Hakuin says in the last lines of a of one of his poems, he says, "This very place is the lotus land of purity." This very body is the body of the Buddha. So here we are, sitting, you're minding your own business, you're following the breath, you're doing your walking, and the qigong. My friend Norman Fisher says that practice is sitting with the basic feeling of being alive. Seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, different other body sensations, thinking, That's about what there is. All arising over and over in the presence and space of the aware mind. So here's a radical thought. Maybe being alive is enough. Maybe it's enough just to be alive. David White says, enough. These few words are enough. If not these words, this breath, if not this breath, this sitting here, this opening to the life we have refused again and again, 
until now, until now. But so many things get in the way, right? We're sitting, being present, the endlessly wanting mind, the aversion and the upset, the sleepiness, probably a lot of you had a lot of that today, the restlessness, the various plots and stories and commentaries of our thoughts. But you know, these hindrances are part of being alive and they're part of our practice. And they're actually, when they come along and you realize, oh my goodness, look at all this aversion or look at all this desire. It's an opportunity to see where you're not cooked yet, to see where you're still caught. So it's kind of not great news, but it's also good news because now you're seeing it. And it's definitely part of being human. And then coming back again and again to that breath, to the body, easing our situation and discovering that when we are fully present and not fighting what's happening, that's the place where we begin to ease the suffering. That's the way, the place where we begin to cope with samsara. Nothing special, nothing fancy, just being fully here for whatever time we have. Being here in a way which harms no one, even ourselves, and being here without suffering, or at least with less suffering. Eric Vanderloo says, the mystery of life is not a problem to be solved, but a reality to be experienced. So Steve was here in his ordinary and wonderful way of being. He knew a great deal of suffering. He practiced as though his hair was on fire. He knew a great deal of love. He left way too soon. And his actions will inspire us inspire us and our actions for a long time. And he would say to all of us, to me and to you, he would say, remember, it's precious, it's short, actions count, there can be an end to the enormous suffering of the world. So I wanted to close with a poem that one of the other caretakers here, Jim Bates, wrote about Steve. He called it rarely. He said, rarely do we meet this sort of person. And doing so can be disconcerting, for they hold nothing back. And in their eyes we may glimpse something of which we may yet hide. For most of us, the way through the thorns and the brambles is a a bit of snipping and pruning, cautiously making our way forward, allowing hope of future salvation to guide us, fearing our own bleeding. He, however, found a strength to pull the sword from the rock, to leave his thickets in shambles, to hew from his life a light made of sparks of sword upon stone that lit a path back to the beginning and all the way through past the end, where the sword could be laid in the nest 
made of the fine, soft fibers of his labors, leaving only vast, open, pulsing love. So let's breathe. So thank you very much for listening. We hope that Steve rests in that vast and open and pulsing love. And I hope that his story was an inspiration for all of you. Sit as long as you'd like, but if you wait for me to get up, you might be waiting for a long time. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.